The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. To my successor, whoever he or she may be. Number one, stay close to the Americans, stick up for the Ukrainians, stick up for freedom. I helped get this country through an incredibly difficult period over the last couple of years. I made sure that we supported those who needed our help at every step. What I believe is that lowering taxes, opening up opportunities is going to help us deliver the economic growth that Britain needs. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, Parliament is no longer sitting. MPs start their summer recess from today. But it doesn't look like politics is going to take a break over the next few weeks. Well, on today's programme, Ben Zaranko from the Institute for Fiscal Studies joins us to explore the next Prime Minister's tax plans. No doubt that will be in focus over the summer. And we also speak to Peter Oborn about truth in politics and his book, The Assault on Truth, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump and the Emergence of a New Moral Barbarism. But first... That's just so awkward. <laughs> Where's Boris? Oh, wait, are we on Tiddy? Yeah, yeah. Boris is back at number 10 Downing Street. Have they all kicked him out yet? Why are they going to kick him out? He doesn't have a big thing. I don't think Larry should be the Prime Minister. Well, that was Liz Truss finding out the hard way that meeting members of the public doesn't always go as planned. Now, Caroline, do you reckon that kids... Uh, Ask harder questions than adults. I mean, on that evidence, of course. I love it. Those boisterous kids giving politicians a hard time. Yes, I think, A, it depends on... It's about age appropriateness, isn't it? How you answer those questions. But they're always going to put you on the spot. You know, they ask you why the sun shines and the tides flow. But that I love that little boy, yeah. Yeah, I would think any politicians, particularly in the leadership race, don't go meet kids. I think would be the, <laughs> would be the takeaway from that. Now, Liz Truss isn't the only one to be caught out by children. Do you remember this excruciating moment for Rishi Sunak? Um, do you prefer Coke or Pepsi? Do you ask everyone this question? <laughs> or, not? <laughs> or not? No, I'm really funny because I'm, again, this is, so I'm a massive, uh, so one of these things that not that many people know about me. So I collect Coca-Cola things. Oh, oh really? Yeah, yeah, I'm a Coke oh. addict. Oh, uh, total a, Coke addict. Total Coke addict. Yeah, probably... Uh, not <laughs> not the right phrasing, I think, for that. But no, you could see uh, that Sunak was kind of squirming commercially. He didn't want to back one horse or the other, did he? Yeah, so awkward. Now, uh, there's a serious point to all of this, and that is the Conservative leadership race. And we have that YouGov poll uh, out, uh, which gives uh, Liz Truss a pretty healthy lead, uh, a whopping 24 points uh, head of Rishi Sunak amongst them. They think they surveyed about 700 uh, Conservative Party members. It's not the first poll we've had. But it looks like a, a pretty uh, solid lead uh, uh, for trust at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they obviously are both looking uh, for their messages to go down smoothly with Conservative Party voters. Um, now, I think this is pretty fascinating. Men, women and Leave voters apparently all prefer Rishi Sunak. Yeah, interesting. That. It's kind of slightly concerning uh, for Sunak that only Remainers uh, are the only key group we seem to be backing, which is a bit of uh, uh, troublesome in the Conservative Party at the moment. But uh, interesting that uh, so Tory voters are, are so keen on those those tax cuts that Truss is promising. And uh, Sunak's uh, uh, 
competence message doesn't seem to be going down that well. Another very interesting thing is that the ballots go out on the 1st of August, so that mm-hmm. is only nine days away. And although Tory members have until September to vote, the received wisdom is that once the ballots are out, people think, oh, well, I may as well fill that in. So they send it off straight away. So what happens in this next uh, week to 10 days Absolutely crucial. Yeah, absolutely. Well, whoever wins, the next Prime Minister faces significant economic challenges from higher energy prices, record inflation to all of the kind of longer term pressures. I mean, we have an ageing population and we're trying to move the economy to net zero. So to break down the differences between the two candidates, uh, we discussed this at length with Ben Zaranko, who's senior research economist at the Institute for Fiscal Studies. I think we know a great deal about what Rishi Sunak's economic policy agenda might look like because he was, of course, Chancellor for the last couple of years. He had lots of chance to set out his stall. And I think we have a fairly good idea of what things might look like, at least over the next few years. Liz Truss has indicated a bit of a more shaking things up, a bit more of a change of direction. She's promising large scale tax cuts. That's partly just reversing tax rises that have already been announced or that are already in the books. And she's promising to you know, relook at the Bank of England's mandate. She's talking about changing the government's fiscal rules. She's talking about almost, you know, a much bigger shift in Britain's economic policy. And I think that the key dividing line between the two, for me, is Rishi Sunak is prioritising safe stewardship of the public finances, prioritising getting inflation down, the public finances in a healthy position before he's willing to think about tax cuts. Liz Truss is willing to do big bang tax cuts right away. If that means higher borrowing, so be it. She also wants to spend more on defence. She said she's not going to be cutting back on spending plans. So it's difficult to see how that could mean anything but a much higher level of borrowing. She hopes that will be paid for by you know, improved supply side of the economy and improved growth. But I think that's more of a gamble. So I think that's the key uh, you know, split when it comes to economic policy between Sunak and Truss. Ben, the Tory-led coalition cut corporation tax. Uh, then Rishi Sunak said we needed to increase it to pay the bills from the pandemic. And now uh, Liz Truss is proposing to get rid of those uh, increases to, to corporation tax. What are the costs of, of that policy? So as it stands in legislation, corporation tax is set to go from 19% to 25% over the next few years. Liz Truss wants to scrap that rise. That will come at a cost of about £17 billion per year in the near term perhaps less in the medium to long term, as hopefully you'd encourage more business investment and that would generate additional revenues. It's also important to emphasize that the headline rate of corporation tax isn't the only thing that matters. George Osborne cut the headline rate of corporation tax quite significantly, but he also squeezed things like investment allowances. So actually the amount of revenue raised didn't fall very much at all. Sunak has said, yes, I'm going to increase the headline rate, but he's been doing a consultation over the summer before he quit the Treasury into how we might reform investment allowances to better target incentives for businesses to pump money into investment. Liz Truss is signalling instead she wants to focus on the headline rate. So I think both are keen, keen to use a tax system to encourage investment, but have quite different visions about how that ought to be done. Okay, that's for businesses. But then uh, the national insurance rise was so hard fought, hard fought over within the Conservative Party. Um, and it was it was passed uh, attacks both on employers and employees. Now it looks like it's back in question again. That's right. So it's only recently come into effect. Um, it's about £13 billion a year it raised. So if you want to scrap that, that's about how much it would cost, which taken together with the £17 billion for corporation tax, means Liz Truss has promised at least £30 billion of tax cuts. Now, it's important to you know, remember that the, the national insurance rise was explicitly said this is to help pay for 
rising costs of health and social care with an elderly population, uh, that social care reform package that was announced as well, the money for that is supposed to come from this tax rise. If Liz Truss wants to scrap that, is she also saying we're going to spend less on health and social care? I don't think that's been made clear. And the key thing in the long term is the levels of tax and spending cannot diverge indefinitely. If you want to have lower taxes, ultimately, in the end, you're going to also have lower spending. And the question for those candidates should be, OK, what do you want to spend less on? Where are those spending cuts going to come from to fund those big tax cuts that you're promising to? Ben, I appreciate this is a, a tricky question, but is all this doable? When I say all this, I'm talking about Liz Truss's plans. How much fiscal headroom is there? Is it easy just to have these tax cuts? Can, 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 can we afford it? So on the basis of the government's own forecasts in March, the government has two self-imposed fiscal targets. I'll spare the details, but the headline is they had about £30 billion of what you call headroom. So they're going to meet those targets with about £30 billion to spare. Um, and that's why we've had some candidates say they could afford £30 billion of tax cuts without having to increase borrowing or without putting fiscal rules uh, at risk. Now, that, that number quite could change quite substantially. Clearly, a lot has changed since March. The economy is incredibly turbulent this year, and we don't know if that money is still going to be there come the autumn. There's all sorts of downside risks. But Liz Truss has not only promised £30 billion plus of tax cuts, she's also promised to increase defence spending um, and all sorts of other tax changes and reviews she's thinking about. So I think that if we're being realistic, Liz Truss would have to change those fiscal rules in order to allow her to borrow more. Now, that's reasonable people can disagree about what the appropriate level of borrowing is, and if she wants to borrow more within a new fiscal framework, that's fine. It should be transparently communicated. Um, and it's not, it's a big question is for the long term, really. What does this look like going forwards? Can these tax cuts help to boost the supply side and growth of the economy? If that doesn't work, are we going to have to be looking at tax rises or spending cuts in the future? That seems very possible. And I think there's a little bit of a sense of we'll promise the big tax cuts now and hope that they pay for themselves in the long run. That feels like a bit of a gamble. I want to ask you about the cost of living, actually. So the government has already spent a lot of money, right, on attempting to alleviate the inflation problem. How much has it spent, roughly, and and what more uh, uh, could it spend on? What more are the candidates proposing to spend? Well, Rishi Sunak, as Chancellor, uh, oversaw a support package, you know, in a bit awkwardly done, a bit, you know, a bit done here and a bit done there. Uh, but it added up to about £38 billion pounds or so um, of support, and that's fairly well targeted at the bottom end, protecting low earners and low-income households who we think are least able to weather the storm, um, but with support across the board as well. So like universal money off energy bills, for example. And he would, I'm sure he would say, I've already provided substantial support. It means that low-income households should be at least no worse off on average than they were last year. Uh, I don't think either of these candidates have actually proposed anything further on cost of living. Some of the other candidates okay. are proposing cuts to fuel duty and so on, cuts to VAT. I think these two are more focusing on the longer term vision right now, but that may change when they come into Downing Street at the same time as Ofgem increases the energy price gap. There may be pressure for more to be done okay, there, more yeah. money for energy bills, more council tax rebates. I mean, we've got you know got a dozen hustings between now and September. Look, cut through all of this for me, Ben Saranko, then. What sort of Conservative Party member do you think is going to vote for Liz Truss versus Rishi Sunak? What is, what is going to be in their minds economically when they're thinking about choosing between these two candidates? How would you describe them? There's all sorts of metrics on which people may make these decisions. I think if you're thinking purely about economic policy, I think the key division here is do you want to be sort of a more cautious approach with careful stewardship of the public finances put first 
saying, yes, I would love to deliver tax cuts, but only when we're sure that they're affordable and we can do that without compromising on our ability to bring down government debt? Or do you want to see a big bang of tax cuts straight away, even if that means higher borrowing? Um, you know, okay. perhaps that's worse for the public finances with a gamble on what that maybe might mean for growth. I think that's the choice between the two. I think mm. one is perhaps, uh, you know, the more known, more, uh, you know, often trodden course of action. One is a bit more of a gamble. I think that's the way to frame the choice set facing Conservative members. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Ewan Potts. Well, with the economy centre stage, we've just been speaking to the Institute for Fiscal Studies about the numbers behind Trust and Sunak's campaigns. Well, when Parliament returns from recess, there'll be an inquiry into whether Boris Johnson lied to the House of Commons. We learnt yesterday that the Prime Minister could face a by-election if the inquiry finds him guilty. Someone who has tracked this phenomenon in politics is journalist, author and broadcaster Peter Oborn. From his 2005 book, The Rise of Political Lying, to his latest work, The Assault on Truth, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump and the emergence of a new moral barbarism. And I'm pleased to say that Peter Oborn is with us here on Bloomberg Radio. Peter, thank you so much for joining us uh, on what is an immensely difficult subject for, for voters, for politicians. Is lying, though, worse now than it has been before? And if so, why do you think it is? Oh, it's definitely uh, worse. Um, it is true that the Blair government, and Tony Blair and his sort of entourage in particular, said, made some terrible lies about the Iraq war. And in particular, of course, although Mr Blair, I should stress, still maintains it wasn't a lie, he just got it wrong. The weapons of mass destruction idea, which provided the legal justification as far as Britain was concerned for the war. But what we've seen in the last um, really five or ten years is something new. Um, first of all, Donald Trump, um, who, as we know, was a sort of systemic uh, liar and couldn't tell the difference between lies and truth and deployed lies as a political weapon in order to target minorities in particular and gather support. And he's been followed by uh, Boris Johnson, who who was a prodigious liar. I mean, he and his cabinet, too, I'm afraid, were brought into this. He, there had been quite a strong ethic of telling the truth in British public life, and John, Boris Johnson just trashed it. You make the argument in your book that, that Johnson and Trump's methodology of deceit is about uh, securing power for its its own ends, and even when they get exposed for lying, they they shrug it off as a as a matter of of no consequence. Is that is that partly our fault for for letting them get away with that? Oh, very much. A, a large part of this story is media complicity in the uh, lying phenomenon. Um, 
uh, and I tell, I, I tried to expose Mr. Johnson's lying after he became prime minister, and you couldn't, I just couldn't get it any interest in the press because the media had become so partisan towards Johnson that they enabled Mr. Johnson to create his own truth in order to win power. And that explains his survival in office for so long, because the mainstream media groups, the Murdoch Press, which also significantly owns Fox News, uh, the Associated Press in Britain and the Telegraph Group, they really protected Johnson from uh, and didn't make an issue of his lying. Mm. What about social media? Is that a factor? I mean, that's certainly something, you know, with Trump that was an issue. I wonder, actually, oddly enough, uh, I, I, I follow Twitter and, and I noticed that Twitter has been very good at exposing Mr. Johnson's lies. You get sort of respected academics like, say, Jonathan Cortez or, or uh, Peter Stefanovich, who's a, 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 from the trade union movement. And they've been really assiduous at, at exposing the, the falsehoods of senior British politicians, but they never got followed up in the mainstream media, including the BBC, I think, was very negligent uh, at letting Johnson uh, get away with it. So it wasn't simply the written press, which was so partisan for so long towards Johnson, and so it just became too embarrassing at the very end. It was also um, the mass sort of broadcast media. And it isn't just the media, is it? There's a section of the electorate in, in the US with, with Trump and in, the, in this country with Johnson and to a certain extent with Corbyn as well on, on the other side who just don't care whether what's being said is true or not. Their, their man is right and that's the end of it. Yes, there's a lovely phrase uh, called, which I stole from a, an American writer or a sociologist, social anthropologist tribal uh, epistemology uh, and, really, and you take the sort of football analogy when your team is is playing uh, and uh, you uh, another side hacks down your defender well you're convinced that's a foul but maybe it's but you you see everything which your referee does purely through the prism of your own sort of mm. football team and that is okay when it comes to doing sport but when you're doing politics we have had this doctrine actually in britain especially of a neutral public arena where uh, there are lo- one of the rules of the game is that there are tr- uh, Anglo uh, there are truths uh, that there is a common agenda where we a common truth which we all adhere to and we obviously we have very different in- can have and should have very different interpretations of those truths but they um, but we we do accept that there is a common truth which belongs to all sides. What we've happened now, and Trump exploited this in Johnson just as much, and in a more sophisticated way in some ways, uh, we, we actually have started to own the truth. Truth has become something which is you take ownership of as a football team takes ownership of, of the rules. But then you also must be, I mean, you are a Conservative at heart, you're a Brexiteer. You must be pretty disappointed in the Conservative Party, capital C, and Tory MPs in that case. I'm amazed by uh, the Tory party and many Tory MPs, including, I should say, both the uh, contenders to replace Mr. Johnson. They were leading figures of Mr. Johnson's cabinet and sit there in PMQs by Mr. questions, hearing Mr. Johnson tell, uh, lie week after week after week and not worrying about it. 
they are complicit in this bent system. Uh, and that can't, can't be forgotten. The Conservative Party, it's important to say, is a, is cons- means conservative in the sense of obeying due, due process, respecting established institutions, um, and particularly uh, having a kind of integrity. And, of course, what Johnson has done to the Conservative Party is trash all of that. He's trashed truth. He's tra- he tried to trash Parliament. He's trashed the reputation of the Conservative Party very much as, as Trump has sort of termed the Republican Party from being really quite a respectable political organization into a sort of alt-right group beset with conspiracy theories. He's, he, Trump has you know, attacked the rule of law. Johnson attacked the rule of law. And always, of course, I'm taking aim at minority groups. Um, so, uh, and that Muslims in both cases, actually. So, I mean, in this kind of pretty depressing uh, landscape, does anything change? How do we how do we fight back, perhaps, if we do agree that there should be a common truth? And how are we in some ways catching up? And again, sort of via social media towards the end of Trump's time, you know, every TV station and online people were fact checking. Organisations decided to sort of live fact check statements. Are we going to get to that point in the UK too? PMQs, you know, there's going to be a little box next to it with somebody sort of giving you the data. I'm, I'm very critical of there is there is an there are several excellent fact checking organisations. The most important of which is Full Fact. Um, Will Moy is the chap who runs it. I really recommend him. I, I think you should listen to him. He, he and, and they are excellent. Uh, the BBC has been negligent. You're quite right. They should have had PMQs. There should have been a little box because Johnson, towards the end, especially was there was often three or four lies per PMQs. You know. Um, it was incredible. Um, a, a new kind of political epistemology had emerged. And I don't see, I, I think, I'm going to write a letter actually to Mr. Sunak and to Ms. Truss and ask them to uh, both places that we need to have a correction of the parliamentary record for all of the uh, times that, in defiance of the ministerial code, Boris Johnson misled the House of Commons. I've got a list. I have a website, boris-johnson-lies.com, very detailed. has about 700-plus lies uh, or misleading statements, to use the proper term, told by Mr Johnson and his cabinet uh, colleagues. Now, what I would, I'm going to ask Truss and Sunak to do uh, is to take the, correct the record in all cases, and that would be a huge symbol or signal that they are going to bring honesty back. Very, it sounds a very quaint and old-fashioned idea, but actually political discourse isn't, proper, isn't possible without it back into British public life. Is there at least hope that uh, Trump and Johnson and their particular brand of politics is an aberration? Or do you think really that we are going down a path now and it is something of a sort of one-way street? Well, I think we have to fight it because ultimately liberal democracy isn't possible without, without it. Let's take the analogy with the financial markets, you know, that's which is Bloomberg's core territory. If one trader rings another and says, I'll pay you $5.50 a share, and then he, and later on, he, you know, he denies saying, I know I actually I was offering you $5.30, the whole thing collapses. But that is what Johnson does day in, day out, or has done in his uh, wretched, squalid 
Labour or Premiership. And it wouldn't be permitted in financial markets because they would just collapse on the basis in a sort of mass of lawsuits. But somehow um, Johnson has discovered, or that was his methodology, as did Trump, that you can lie repeatedly to voters and it doesn't matter. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.